Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt This is Cutting Through the Matrix on September the 14th, 2012 For newcomers as always, and then get this over at the beginning of the broadcast Rather than pester you all the way through I'd like to remind you that uh, you're the audience that bring me to you I don't bring on advertisers as guests that scare you then sell you things And uh, that gives me more leeway to talk honestly about certain things too And also... Um, it's up to you to say if you like the, what you're hearing on this particular broadcast And lots of other guys copy the stuff that comes out from here And have kind of followed it for a long, long time So, uh, as I say, if you want to support me You can help me uh, keep ticking along by buying the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com And you can also uh, donate as well Because most of the thing, most donations are really, really welcome at this time because we're going through austerity, you see. And most folk do, most folk do get used to just at the TV, they click you on every night or the radio and there you are and they think uh, it's all taken care of by advertising or whatever. I've got no, um, contact whatsoever to the advertisers that you hear advertising in the breaks in this broadcast. Uh, So it's nothing to do with me at all. And a great thank RBN for even putting this, this particular broadcast on. So, as I say, if you support me and keep me going, then we'll get more and more information out as time goes on in these weird times. And they really are incredibly weird times. And remember, too, from the U.S. to Canada, you can still use personal checks or international postal money orders from the post office. You can use PayPal or you can send cash. And across the world, you've got Western Union MoneyGram and PayPal once again. And again, straight nations are really, really welcome. And what I do is just tie in uh, information from the past to the present to show you the big boys that run the world. And, and you've got to really understand this very basic truth. And it's a truth. Government is, and governance is all about the future, controlling the present and setting up uh, instruments to, to make sure that the future stays in the same hands of the same tiny uh, dominant minority. That's how big corporations work too. They're always looking into 50 years down the road or more to make sure that there's where they'll be then, where they'll be, where they want to be, how they'll get there, how the competition will either be amalgamated with them or else they'll knock them out because that's how business really is. And it's the same with government as well, dominant minorities. And the dominant minority we have today has been here for a long, long time, actually many centuries when you go back through history, starting with the British Empire, and then moving on through the, 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 the world into the global empire. The U.S. has taken over the, the torch, as you say, and uh, they pay for most of the stuff now. The armies, the military, the taxes from, come from the people. They supply the bodies that get to go over to shoot or be shot and all of that kind of stuff. And, and you have to go into the histories, as I say, of the groups that formed at least came out in public, at least in the 1800s, and then into the 1900s, such as the the Milner Group, 
a group of international bankers got together and they amalgamated with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation and Lord Rothschild's Foundation and they established the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which sounds awfully uh, governmental, but really that they're, they're, they're private, they're a private organization with a government charter or a crown charter that's above government in the British Empire system. So you understand they set up to take over the whole world and manage all the people underneath them as we go through the big massive changes. That's why you have all these neuroscientists and psychologists getting massive funding to find ways to, to control the people through their media because the same boys own all of the media, the mainstream media. And they really mean business. I read an article today from Australia where one psychologist was getting well over a million dollars, a million and a half dollars, so that he can censor the news, basically, what's real and what's not, what the public should hear. You know, the proper news, the authorised news. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts, cutting through the matrix and talking about things as they really are. Understand we're all under management perception, or perception management, as I like to call it. And that means total perception management. That's why you've been trained for many, many years through the regular media, even your weather stations, to bring on experts to tell you what to wear when it's raining, and all that kind of stuff, because experts rule your lives. And you've been training you. Uh, just to obey the word expert. Something comes on, you're an expert, you don't question it, and you go along with their point of view. After all, who are you at the bottom, obviously? And, and of course, uh, Lord Bertrand Russell said this back in the 1940s and 50s, that we shall train the public to, to simply obey uh, the, the academia and experts when they're presented to them. We're always being trained. And most folk will take opinions because they're guided to the conclusions, just like a, a computer uh, will, will come to certain conclusions. The programmer knows it, and the guy that designs it knows it too, because they don't know the program, they know this logic, and they know that it must run a certain logic to come to the, a certain conclusion. We're just the same. We're fed bits and bytes of information rep, uh, repetitively. It's, it's, it's constant over and over again. And... And uh, repetition certainly makes us think. Can they always say in advertising that Trump, a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. And that's how we're bombarded all the time with all major points of view that we're supposed to believe in, you see. Now, the ones at the top know different stories. Of course, they know the higher realities of how things really are on, on every level, everything, in fact. Why things are really happening, too. In fact, the job of government is really to find ways to lie to the public about pretty well everything. I hope you understand that. That's his job. It's always been that way, though. I mentioned that Francis Bacon mentioned that, too, a long time ago, to the king, with his form of resume, as he was trying to get another job. And uh, and that's how they did it. It's like Machiavelli. They wrote res- massive resumes to impress royalty, to, so they'd, they'd be brought on as an advisor. Advisors are very important, even more so today, perhaps. So perception, perception management is a big, big, big science. And, of course, they're bringing all the psychologists, neuroscientists, all these guys on to work with it. And they also put stuff into ads and so on on television. Everything that's politically correct, you're getting upgraded to, to parrot and mimic and believe. You'll go ahead and do it without even thinking. Because everyone else, and especially in your own peer group, will go along at the same time with the, the new opinions and so on. Very simple stuff. 
and we are trained better than any other animal on the planet. Now, I've mentioned chemtrails often, and the history of the chemtrails. I've gone on to Teller before, the guy who invented the H-bomb, and how he not only was into chemtrails, he wanted to associate chemtrails not just with weather modification, but also with using electromagnetic frequency waves, what I call it HARP uh, technology, uh, which can interact with these metallic particles in the air that they spray and alter the weather. And he wanted it for warfare purposes. And I've got a few articles here about some of the things to do with that because it's so prevalent. Just the last few days I've watched the, the skies which were temporarily blue Temporarily for years, because before that you get the white mush. And I've read the fact that the guys in geoengineering say, yeah, if they do it, they'll get white mush. And that's where you end up, these whitish skies. But there's a few, a few weeks of blue for, for there, and bang, I, I knew something was going to happen. They've, they've altered the stuff that they're putting on heavier than ever before, and they're building up a storm, and it broke today. And came that really black clouds as it was spraying away, and, and it was a monsoon. You don't get normal rain now, you get monsoons. A lot of rain falls in a few hours, way more than, than it used to. The weather is completely manipulated, not just in Canada or the States, but across the world. And as they do this, again, perception management comes into play because they must normalize what you're seeing so that you'll think, oh, well, you know. And they come up with the contrail stuff. Oh, it's condensation and all the rest of it. And I, I love this one that came out in the, the Telegraph the newspaper, the photographs of the week type thing, and, and you see this mess over London, and they're normalizing uh, chemtrails into contrails now. You see, back to contrails, uh, just to get you used to that, so that when someone says chem- chemtrails, immediately, oh, no, they're contrails, you see. And I'll put this link up tonight so you can see the mush over London yourself, which is pretty well the mush over me. I only have a tiny wee airport, to the north of me, and it doesn't, it only gets about four or maybe even three or even two flights per day, mainly from Texas, because they come up to do with the mining in Sudbury, the big boys. Now, I'll put that one up, and also I'll put up one to do with, uh, it's called Stolen Skies, and it's quite interesting. It's written by William Thomas. Now, William Thomas is a kind of greeny type guy, and I think he works for, for the United, one United Nations Department at one point, in the field type thing. But uh, he does good uh, follow-ups to what's happening in the sky. And he talks about um, how the jet trails in the sky used to disappear, but now they linger. In fact, they stay and they widen, in fact, and merge with other trails that are laying. And he goes through a story to do what happened, um, I think, in British Columbia, Canada, but to, to a guy... Um, uh, who saw this stuff happening back in the, the 90s, I think, or two, year 2000, and he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And that's how it is when it, when it first started. If you were aware or conscious at all before it all started, about 98 or so, um, you saw it. It was, it was night and day. It was like walking into a science fiction movie, walking outside, because it didn't happen like that before. It was so sudden. But anyway, he complained this guy who saw it in B.C., and he complains to uh, different agencies out there too. And eventually he got it from uh, some answer from the military out in Canada, in, the, in uh, British Columbia, who told him that uh, 
they were not doing a military exercise. However, they've been told, they've been told already from, uh, another organization that there was a military exercise. So the Canadian military negated that and says, no, there's no military exercise. At least not in their records. So who was doing it? Someone was doing it, you see. And it goes through the story of this guy, as I say, who checked up and checked or tried to find what really was going on. And he was told that, that um, this is Terry Stewart, the manager of planning and environment, the, the Victoria International Airport, responded to callers complaining about the strange patterns of circles and grids being woven over the British Columbia capital. Stewart left a message on his answering machine tape a message that was later heard by more than 50 million radio listeners, and Stewart explained it's a military exercise, you see. It says, and Canadian Air Force exercise is going on. But then he says, if they called Comox, which is the Canadian Force's base on Vancouver Island, it says Canada's biggest radar installation, and it's easily capable of uh, tracking the U.S. formations coming out from the south. When asked for a response to Stewart's statement, the base information officer at CFB Comox replied tersely that no military operation is taking place. So, by the summer of 2001, pictures of contrails were being circulated by the Associated Press and the world word chemtrails could be overheard in coffee shop conversations across the continent. And, of course, then, through the big boys got into action and Senator, uh, U.S. Senator Colonel Walter Washbaugh, uh, Chief of the Congressional Inquiry Division for the Secretary of Air Force in Washington, D.C., called chemtrails a hoax. I had to do that initially. They always tell you not to believe what you're saying. And he blamed the increased number of contrails on significant civil aviation growth in the past decade. And the author goes on to say he's right on that score. National Science Foundation found that in certain heavily trafficked corridors, artificial cloud cover has increased by as much as 20%. Well, I wouldn't fall for that so easily. I mean, they're also spraying out of many, many planes. However, it says here um, that officials' uh, denials reached new altitudes of absurdity when another colonel claimed the U.S. Air Force does not conduct spraying operations over populated areas. But if it got about all the tankers they sprayed in uh, overpopulated areas in Vietnam, then when they spread Agent Orange over the, the, the whole darn place. So meanwhile, the internet was a buzz with chemtail conspiracy theories, yada, yada, yada. So this is, goes through the history of chemtrails. And then it goes into the Wellbach patent. Wellbach, or Wellsbach it's called. In 1994, the Hughes Aerospace Company was issued a remarkable patent the Wellsbach patent for reduction of global warming proposed countering global warming by dispensing microscopic particles of aluminum oxide and other reflectable, reflective materials into the upper atmosphere. The sky shield would reflect one or two percent of incoming sunlight. The patent suggested that tiny metal flakes could be added to the fuel of jet airliners so that particles could be emitted from the jet engine exhausts while the airliner was at cruising altitude. Computer simulations by Ken Caldera at California's Lawrence and Livermore National Laboratory calculated that employing Wellsbach's clinical sunscreen technology could stop global warming over 85% of the planet, despite an anticipated doubling of atmospheric carbon within the next 50 years. This is LLNL estimated the cost of creating uh, this so-called sky shield at $1 billion a year, a cheap fix to avoid threatening the massive profits of the oil industry. Now, by the way, I think the uh, University of, of Alberta uh, put out a study too, I have it here somewhere, where they say it would cost about $5 billion. I guess that's just for Canada. At the 1998 International Seminar on Planetary Emergencies, Edward Teller, the father of the H-bomb, presented his next big idea, 
Taylor called for spreading reflective chemicals over the earth to act like a mirror shade. If it was impossible to protect the entire planet, these chemical sky shields could at least be extended to cover allies who secretly agreed to allow this unprecedented geoengineering experiment to be carried out over their territory. They actually called it the Open Skies Treaty. There's another one just for commercial craft, but there's another one for, for what they're doing. In the July-August 1998 Science and Technology Review, Teller argued that the Sky Shield offered a more realistic option for addressing global warming than drastic cutbacks in CO2 emissions. When he was asked if it, the, the technology was being pursued, he says, uh, he says, to my knowledge, the answer is negative. In fact, the technology already exists and existed before that. In 1975, the U.S. Navy patented a device for producing a powder contrail having maximum radiation scattering ability. The powder contained a mixture of 0.3 micron-sized titanium dioxide pigment particles coated with 0.0027 micron hydrophobic colloidal silica. Back with more on this after this break. Very important article. Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix and talking about the chemtrails and basically how you're, you're being managed, your minds are being managed so you don't really think about them. It can be important after all if the media doesn't mention it and uh, if famous people don't come out and, and make a fuss of it, you won't think anything of it. That's what Brzezinski said. He said you will only be able to, to talk and think about, about the things that, that, that um, are on the major media uh, the next day. That's what you do. Most folk do. They talk about the previous day's news. If it's not in the news, it can't be important. Now, as you was going to say, this is in Canada again. In the spring of 1998, rain falling through heavy chemtrails over Espanola, Ontario. And I remember when that happens because it doesn't say it in here, but I know there was a lot of sickness in the area. They were coming in low and they are coming over the Great Lakes. And, um, and, and there was a deal the Canadian government had made with the U.S. The U.S. jets were coming up, going low, and spraying the stuff. Understand, Canadians really are guinea pigs. We were the first ones to do GM food. We didn't even know we were eating the stuff for 10 years. They kept it secret. That came out in the papers. Government makes secret deal with Monsanto and kept it from the public for 10 years that we're even eating this stuff. Then they studied our health effects, you see. And they know it worked, it kills us. But anyway, here they were testing on, on the people on this little town of Espanola. It's not far from me, uh, Ontario. And it was found to contain concentrations of aluminum particles seven times higher than permitted by Canadian health safety laws. Provincial health officers ordered tests after residents began complaining about, this is what you get with it, it's more to it than this, severe headaches, chronic joint pain. It'll give you arthritis, a lot of people. also gives you cramping in the muscles. Dizziness, sudden extreme fatigue, acute asthma attacks, even if you've never had asthma in your lives, and feverless flu-like symptoms. The results of the test were not released. Now, however, it was more than that because there was also a massive increase in stillbirths amongst people and animals. The, the people going into the forest were noticing the deer were having stillbirths as well. But so were there, the people, the women lived near too. And it says the report of illness all came from residents inside a 50-square-mile area who complained they'd been subjected to months of spraying by photo-identified, and it's true, I've seen the photographs, U.S. Air Force tanker planes, refueling planes. The USAF denied the intrusions, and the government in Canada shut up. 
On November the 18th, 1998, Canadian opposition party defence critic Gordon Earle petitioned uh, a parliament on behalf of the people of Espanola, speaking out on behalf of Canada's new Democratic Party. He says, over 500 residents of the Espanola area have signed a petition raising concerns over possible government involvement in what appears to be aircraft emitting visible aerosols. They found high traces of aluminum and quartz and particulate and rainwater samples. Maybe you're breathing all this stuff in and it gets through the lungs into the bloodstream. These concerns combined with associated respiratory ailments have led these Canadians to take action and seek clear answers from this government. The petitioners call upon Parliament to repeal any law that would permit the dispersal of military chaff, they call it chaff, or any uh, cloud-seeding substances whatsoever by domestic or foreign military aircraft without the informed consent of the citizens of Canada thus affected. A Harvard School of Public Health team determined that particulates with a diameter less than 10 microns, which is one-tenth the thickness of a human hair, pose a serious threat to public health. Uh, Remember that other one was 0.3 microns, the stuff that we're spraying in the States. On April 2, 2001, the New York Times warned these microscopic moats are able to infiltrate the tiniest compartments in the lungs and pass readily into the bloodstream and have been most strongly tied to illnesses and early death, particularly in people who are already susceptible to respiratory problems. On December the 14th, 2000, the New England Journal of Medicine reported that inhaling particulate matter of a size 10 microns or smaller leads to a 5% increased death rate within 24 hours of the spraying. That's what it means. Teller's sunscreen costs for spraying 10 million tons of talcum fine reflective particles, particulates of 10 to 100 micron sizes. And then it says uh, the Congress addresses the chemtrails. On October the 2nd, 2001, Representative Dennis uh, Kucinich of Ohio introduced the Space Preservation Act of 2001, which called for the elimination of exotic weaponry from space. Amongst the weapons to be banned were weather modification weapons such as HARP, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, and chemtrails. Though H.R. 3616 was later amended to remove the section that would have banned chemtrails, the original bill acknowledged the existence of chemtrail technology remains on the pages of the congressional records. With chemtrails now officially admitted by the U.S. government, an even bigger trial was set to, to begin in the court of public opinion. And then it says chemtrails go global. Uh, sightings of oddly lingering plumes, sometimes resembling rocket trails, are not confined to North America. Well, on leaving Italy in the summer of 1999, the U.S. Navy's Kitty Chastain sat in her hotel balcony and watched aerial grids being laid all day just offshore over the Bay of Naples. It all started at the same time, folks. In Spain, on April 27, 2000, the American tourist John Henricks dashed off a quick email from El Café uh, of Internet where we were surprised to see that the, the chemtrails are as bad here as they are anywhere, both in Mallorca and uh, Barcelona. Add Sweden to the list. And it says chemtrail activity has been reported at least in 14 allied nations, including Australia, Belgium, Britain, Canada, France, Germany, Holland, Ireland, Italy, New Zealand, Scotland, Sweden, and the United States. And then it says another scary scenario. According to the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, the only way to form artificial clouds in warm, dry air is to introduce enough particulates into the atmosphere to attract and accrete all available moisture into visible vapor. If repeated often enough, the resulting rainlessness haze can lead to drought. Drought, folks. Back with more after this break. 
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back. We're cutting through the matrix and talking about chemtrails uh, because it's, it's so prevalent. It's, it's so disgusting to be sprayed like bugs every darn day and watchful getting sick, awfully sick. And I'll also put these links up tonight. Remember at cuttingthroughthematrix.com when I upload. Now, also another video I'll put up too is, is really classic. It's really good where there's a, a town uh, ship in the States having a, a talk about chemtrails and the fact that so many of them are sick with, uh, with uh, barium, aluminum, uh, oxide and strontium and, and various other things. And uh, it's interesting you really watch it because first they bring on the school teacher, the school teacher, young one too, who, was, who probably just looked up, uh, you know, Wikipedia or something to get the, the, the new rubbish about it. And she gives you this, oh, you have trace elements in most of these things in our bodies, yada, yada. You can get it from glass making and, and working in the oil industry. Well, this guy came out afterwards who was really sick with it and says, I've had enough of this little school talk here. And he says, he's just got his report back from his blood test and he's full of all these things, aluminum oxide, barium, strontium and so on. And he says, and so are most of the folk in this town. He says, they're all, you're all sick, he says. And then he goes to town and starts talking about the chemtrails. He says, haven't you looked above your heads? It's what's coming down on you, etc., etc. Excellent uh, little little talk he gives. So I'll put this up tonight too and go through it. Just hang on, on for the teacher with a little, you know, talking to four-year-olds explanation, which is all she'll probably know and not much at that. And he goes into the real or higher stuff and it's excellent. Very, very good. Also tonight, too, I'll put up, I want to do this one here. It's an interesting one. And it's from the American Conservative. I don't care who puts out things, left wing, right wing, whatever they happen to be or pretend they are. It doesn't matter. But this is a good little article. It says, one can say without exaggeration that inflation is an indispensable means of militarism, said Ludwig von Mises. It says, without it, the repercussions of war and welfare uh, become obvious much more quickly and penetratingly. War weariness would set in much earlier. This explains why American politicians have always resorted to the legalized counterfeiting of central banking to finance wars, the most expensive of all government programs. If citizens had a clearer picture of the true costs, they'd be more inclined to oppose non-defensive intervention and to force all wars to hastier conclusions. Government can finance war and everything else by only three methods, which is taxes, debts, and the printing of money. Taxes are the most visible and painful, followed by debt finance, which crowds out private borrowing, drives up interest rates, and imposes a double burden of principal and interest, plus the public have to pay off all the debts. Money creation, on the other hand, makes war seem costless to the average citizen, but of course there's no such thing as a free lunch. As a general rule, the longer a war lasts, the more centrally planned and government-controlled the entire economy becomes. Remember what Quigley said, not said, you get more done in five years of war from a government perspective by taking over and intruding into all the lives of the citizenry and farming and everything, all business, than you can in 50 years of peace and propaganda. It says here, and it becomes to, it remains so to a degree after the war has ended. War is the health of the state, as Randolph Byrne famously declared, and the growth of the state means a decline in liberty and prosperity for the people who have to pay up the debts, not for the ones who cause it at the top, you know. 
As Robert Higgs wrote in Crisis and Leviathan, amongst the effects of World War I were massive government collusion with organized special interest groups. The de facto nationalization of the ocean shipping and railroad industries, the increased federal intrusion in labor markets, capital markets, communications and agriculture, and enduring changes in constitutional doctrines regarding conscription and governmental suppression of free speech. Uh, inflationary war finance inevitably leads to calls for price controls which inflict even greater damage on the private enterprise system by generating shortages of goods and services which are falsely blamed on capitalism. The state uses this excuse to grant itself even greater central planning powers. You can see that's all happening now with Homeland Security taking over the food supply and everything else. Inflating the currency as a method of war finance is often the first step in the adoption of what is essentially economic fascism. It doesn't matter if you call it fascism, communism, I don't really care, it's all the same thing to me. Paper and printing, by the same people, paper and printing were invented in China, but most American politicians were the first to use government paper money. It was adopted by the colonial government of Massachusetts in 1690. As Murray N. Rothbard wrote, the Massachusetts government was accustomed to launching plunder expeditions against the prosperous French colony in Quebec. The loot was typically used to pay mercenary soldiers, but when one of the expeditions failed and the soldiers threatened mutiny, the Massachusetts government printed 7,000 British pounds in paper notes to pay them, to pay the troops. The government promised to redeem the paper money in gold or silver, but it took 40 years to do so. Meanwhile, the public was so suspicious of the notes that they depreciated by 40% in the first year. By 1740, every colony except for Virginia had followed Massachusetts' lead in issuing fiat paper money. The results were dramatic inflation, boom and bust cycles, and depreciated currency. During the revolution, a form of centralized banking was adopted when the Continental Congress issued the Continental in 1775. Because it was not backed by anything of value, the Continental depreciated so severely it was virtually worthless by 1781. Not worth a Continental became a popular slang term. Some of the states attempted to deal with inflation caused by the massive printing of continentals with price control laws. The predictive effect was shortages, and they were so severe that George Washington's army almost starved in a field in Pennsylvania. The situation became so desperate that the Continental Congress issued a resolution on June 4, 1778, urging all the states to abolish their price control laws. Whereas, whereas it hath been found by experience that limitations upon the prices of commodities are not only ineffectual for the proposed pur- purpose, but likewise a productive of very evil consequences, resolved that it would recommend it to the several states to repeal or suspend all laws limiting, regulating, or restraining the price of any article. Within three months, the army was fairly well provided for as a direct result of this change in policy, writes Robert Schuttinger and Eamon Butler in 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls, How Not to Fight Inflation. That's a book. Despite the economic calamities caused by America's first foray into centralized control of the money supply, at the end of the Revolutionary War, the nation's first central bank, which was the Bank of North America, was created with defense contractor Congressman Robert Morris, implanted as its president. Centralized banking might have been ruinous for the general public, but political insiders like Morris profited handsomely. The bank uh, was given a monopoly license to issue paper currency, and it used most of its newly created money for loans to the central government. And so doing it inflated its currency so rapidly that within one year the market lost all confidence in the bank and it was privatized. 
Alexander Hamilton was a real founding father of central banking, as the Federal Reserve Board declared in one of its publications. His bank of the United States, which is called BUS, bus, I guess they bust the cash away from you, established in 1791 after a momentous debate between Hamilton and Jefferson over its constitutionality, was partly intended to finance sudden emergencies like war, in Hamilton's own words. He rejected Washington and Jefferson's foreign policy of commercial relations with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Instead, he advocated a permanent military establishment complete with a large navy and standing army that would pursue imperial glory. That's what he called it, Hamilton. As historian Clinton Rossiter explains, Hamilton's overriding purpose was to build the foundations of a new empire. The Warhawks, they, they talk a lot about that. Hamilton praised public debt as a blessing and complained to George Washington, he said, we need a government of more energy. Jefferson, on the other hand, opposed both a large public debt and a national bank, arguing the perpetuation of debt has drenched the earth with blood. It's still going on, of course. A reference to the European monarch's endless wars of conquest funded by public debts. And that's so true. It's still going on today. It's the same bunch actually running it. Hamilton's Bank of the United States ran up 72% inflation in its first five years and created such economic instability that its 20-year charter was not renewed by Congress in 1811. Then came the senseless war of 1812. There was no central bank, but the federal government still devised a way to monetize the war debt, encouraged the creation of dozens of private banks, then in 1814 declared a suspension of specie payment. That is, banks were not required to redeem their paper currency in gold or silver, Thus, under the direction of the U.S. Congress, banks were allowed to inflate their currencies at will for two and a half years as a means of monetizing the war debt, thereby disguising the cost of the conflict to the public. Inflation during the war years averaged about 35%. This was exacerbated when the, the BUS, the bank, was resurrected in January 1817 and empowered to create a national paper currency, purchase public debt, and receive deposits of U.S. Treasury funds. Rothbard explained the politics and his histories of money and, and banking in the United States. And he says the second bank of the U.S. was pushed through Congress, particularly by Secretary of the Treasury Alexander, Alexander J. Dallas, who was a wealthy Philadelphia lawyer and close friend counsel and financial associate of Philadelphia merchant and banker Stephen Girard, or Girard uh, report, reputedly one of the two wealthiest men in the country. Girard was the largest stockholder of the first bank of the U.S., and during the War of 1812, Jerry became a very heavy investor in the war debt of the federal government. As a way to unload his public debt, Gerard began to agitate for a new bank of the United States. The second bank of the U.S. launched a spectacular inflation of money and credit, writes Rothbard, coupled with a great deal of fraud. It promptly created the Panic of 1819, the first real depression in American history. For the first time, there was large-scale unemployment in cities such as Philadelphia, where employment in the manufacturing of handicrafts fell from 9,700 persons in 1815 to only 2,100 in 1819. After nearly 20 years of inflation, fraud, political corruption, and boom-and-bust cycles caused by the Second Bank of the U.S., President Andrew Jackson uh, vetoed the bill to recharter the bank in 1834, and it went out of business. But the Hamiltonian nationalists did not. They would wage a political crusade for the next two decades, 20 years crusades, as a member of the Whig and Republican parties to inflict central banking on the nation once again. They finally succeeded during the Lincoln administration with the Legal Tender Act of 1862, which empowered the Secretary of the Treasury to issue paper greenbacks. 
that were not redeemable in gold or silver. The National Currency Acts of 1863 and 1864 created a system of nationally chartered banks that could issue banknotes and supplied to them by the new uh, controller of the currency. The Act also placed a 10% tax on competing state banknotes to drive them out of business and establish a federal monetary policy monopoly. The predictable effect was massive inflation with the greenback dollars so devalued that within one year they were worth only 35 cents in gold. All of the negative economic effects of the inflation, devaluation of private wealth, unfair redistribution of income from creditors to debtors, and hindrance to, to rational economic calculation damaged the northern war effort, but not as much as that of the south. The north funded most of the war with public borrowing. The south funded most of its wartime expenditures by printing Confederate dollars. Consequently, inflation in the Confederacy averaged more than 2,200% per year. The nationalization of the money supply created an engine of inflation and a powerful lobbying force to advocate that it keep running. Northern manufacturers realized that during periods of inflation, domestic currency tends to depreciate faster than prices are rising. A falling dollar makes domestic goods cheaper and the, the price of imports higher. Henceforth, it became, became a powerful political force in favor of an even further centralization of banking. Meanwhile, the heavily indebted railroads realized that inflation cheapened their debts, so they allied with manufacturers as a permanent lobby for inflation. And that's true in the railroads too, mind you. In Canada, the States, and elsewhere across the world, in the old empire, because there's an empire. I don't care if people think they're sovereign or not, it's been one empire. The, the big moguls, Robert Barnes, got all the land for the, for the railroads for free. Sometimes for miles on either side of the tracks as well. Plus, we paid for it all. It was the first public-private partnership. They ended up owning it all. Not bad deals, eh? These special interests joined the political coalition that created the Federal Reserve Board in 1913, which became an important source of finance for America's disastrous participation in World War I four years later. Well, World War I was all planned, obviously. And, in fact, Mandel House was in contact with uh, was Ed Graves. It was actually Lord Grey from Britain, who was a member of the Milner Group, who became the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And that was his contract, and they planned it themselves to get a central banking in and to get the wars going against Germany and so on, other countries. And then they brought the Warburg guys over. One of them came over. He was only in the country about two years from Germany, and he was head of this brand-new Federal Reserve. And uh, his brother was, was the head of the banking for Germany. At the end of World War One, the, the two of them got together and discussed the debts all the countries owned. It's amazing. This is in your face, isn't it? <laughs> the Fed did not just print green bracks, as was the case during the Civil War. It printed enough money to purchase more than $4 billion in government bonds that were used to finance the war. The amount of money in circulation doubled between 1914 and 1920, as did prices. This was enormous hidden war tax on American people. Wealth was cut in half along with real wages, and just about everything consumers purchased became more expensive. The boom created by the Fed's war financing eventually caused a bust, the Depression of 1920, the first year of which was even worse than the first year of the Great Depression of the 1930s. Cross domestic product declined by 24% from 1920 to 21, while the number of unemployed Americans more than doubled from 2.1 million to 4.9 million. The Great Depression of 1920 only lasted one year, however, thanks to President Warren Harding's inspired policy of cutting both government spending and taxes dramatically. 
In the wars that have followed, central bank financing has inflicted essentially the same kind of damage on American society. Inflation, economic chaos, reduced real wages, price controls, and other government interventions and ideological attacks on capitalism rather than the real culprit, which is the Fed. Adam Smith recognized the advantage of financing wars with taxes rather than public debt when he wrote, Wars would in general be more speedily concluded and less wantonly undertaken. The people feeling during the continuance of a war, the complete burden of it, the cost of it, would soon grow weary of it, and the government, in order to humor them, would not be under the necessity of carrying it on longer than it was necessary to do so. Central bank inflation renders the cost of war even more invisible than debt financing does and is therefore even more disastrous for the American people. So uh, that's how it's run, folks. You're run by crooks, you see. But money's run by crooks. It's always been run by crooks. Definitely the central banking system, for sure. And you understand uh, that the the central banking system uh, was designed, as I say, by the, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and on behalf of the guys who already run the Bank of England and a few other central banks already across Europe. And now there's an article in the paper today uh, about uh, Barroso too is talking about the amalgamation of all the private banking systems into one massive bank under the Bank for International Settlements, which is right out of the agenda of Carl Quigley, who was a historian for the Council on Foreign Relations, which is just the American branch of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. So we're, we're, we're really living a script, you understand, a big plan script. And people really think they're free too. They, they keep thinking, talking about this plan about this thing called democracy. They've never had democracy. Never had it. You, know. you can only have a kind of democracy when you're a common culture. Even the Club of Rome that works for the United Nations and these big bankers who help plan a lot of this system said there's too many competing factions, you know, people who want to change genders, not what's special, right? Everybody's conflicting. Thousands of groups are all, would all fight each other. Understand that? It's already happening. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix and talking about the big system we live in. Most folk believe it's all real because it was already there when they were born and they never questioned it. And most people in their peer group never questioned it either. This article came out and a little part of the article takes another article from the Jerusalem Post. And it says, in an apparent reference to the public spat between the U.S. and Israel, former uh, Israeli Defense Force Chief of Staff Gabi Ashkenazi told the, the calculus on conference on Tuesday that preserving strong ties with the U.S. is an Israeli security necessity. He says we must preserve ties with the U.S. I believe this is a security necessity. And in the past three years, he said, U.S. taxpayers have contributed more to the Israeli defense budget than Israeli taxpayers. Since 2009, that amount is more than $11 billion. That's not including all the weapons they sent over recently, all the missiles and so on. Explaining why money needs to be stolen from U.S. taxpayers and given to the only nuclear state in the Middle East. Despite the fact that Israeli leaders work directly sometimes against U.S. interests, especially when they try to pressure them to launch discretionary wars, and it's getting harder even for hawks to do in the U.S. So I'll put this link up tonight as well. Because we're living in quite some times indeed, and it's really in your face now. It's all really in your face. 
Also, a great article too, and it's called Unprecedented, uh, the, the Economic Union, this, this new Soviet of the whole of Europe. The officials call on fellow countries, all the countries, to give up complete control of their banks. Uh, it says here European of, uh, officials are asking national governments to give up control of their banks as a means of solving the EU's financial crisis that their central banking system got them into. It's meant to get them into it so that they can give up all the other banks and only have the big central banks running uh, the show, the whole of Europe. And it says in a proposal that represents one of the most significant surrenders of national sovereignty since the creation of the euro in 1999, that's the money system, uh, the euro uh, cash system. The European Commission, the EU's executive arm, proposed Wednesday to make the European Central Bank the single supervisor for all 6,000 banks in the 17 countries that use the currency. Now, that was exactly what Quigley talked about in the 60s, since he was the historian for the bunch, the CFR, Royal Institute for International Affairs. They've been running the world for well over 100 years. And he, he said in it that eventually they, they'll bring in a, a one banking system, which they'll own themselves, because it's money boys who own the Royal Institute for International Affairs. They set it up. And he also said that they would be under the supervision of the Bank for International Settlements, BIS. All of this is in this article. The history of it, by the way, is in this article, quite a lot of the history. Well worth watching, going through. And uh, it's, it's quite fascinating. Lots of links and so on. And you'll hear all the different characters in Brussels talking about world government and all the rest of it, a super world uh, currency, yada yada. We're dead on target with everything that was planned uh, and quickly talked about that a long time ago, the Anglo-American establishment, etc. That's what they call it in one of his books. Uh, you've got to read that to understand what's happening today because we're living a script, a long-term business plan. That's what it is. And the other side of it, too, was to alter drastically all cultures, destroy the family unit that have no opposition, nobody would stand up for anybody anymore, and then destroy the cultures totally under the guise of multiculturalism, which is no culture at all. It's already happened, folks. It's already happened. And most folk have adapted into it without thinking. That's how it is. So... From Hamish and myself, from heavily, heavily sprayed by Chemtrail Sky in Ontario, Canada, as good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you. <laughs>